This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. In June 1994, in a small town pub in Northern Ireland, six men were gunned down while watching the opening round of the World Cup. The murder was from the outset associated with the Troubles in Northern Ireland, sectarian fighting between the Protestant Loyalists and Catholic Republicans. And while it was suspected early on that the assailants were members of Ulster Volunteer Force, a Loyalist paramilitary group, no one has ever been since brought to justice for the murders. In a new documentary, No Stone Unturned, by acclaimed filmmaker Alex Gibney, the details of this case are examined in forensic detail and by the end very serious questions are raised around the Northern Ireland Police Force's knowledge of the attacks and their willingness to charge, charge and prosecute those responsible. The film is showing later this week as part of the Irish Film Festival Australia here in Melbourne and to chat more about it we're joined on the line by the film's producer Trevor, Trevor Burney. Welcome to Triple R. Hi Dylan, hi Carl, yep. And I've read, Trevor, that at the time uh, of this attack in 1994, you were a radio journalist. I wonder if you can take us back to, I guess, when you first heard this had happened and, and what your initial reaction was. Yes, I was working for a local radio station in Belfast in 1994. And um, on the night of the attack, uh, actually, I, like many, many other people in Northern Ireland, were... Uh, in front of a television watching Ireland play Italy in a Soccer World Cup game uh, in New York as part of World Cup 1994. And uh, so um, I remember that night incredibly well. Um, And uh, in Belfast, there was a real feeling of uh, tension in the air uh, because three men belonging to the UVF had been shot dead on the streets of Belfast just a few days earlier. And everyone who lived in Northern Ireland knew that there was a very good chance there would be some sort of revenge or reprisal attack. And uh, the night of the match seemed like a really too good an option or too good an opportunity for the UVF, uh, given that many, many Catholics, and in Northern Ireland you'll know that uh, it's it's traditionally Catholics who would go out uh, to watch the Republic of Ireland um, um, and feel their allegiance is too... Republic of Ireland. So uh, right across Belfast and across the north of Ireland, there were uh, pubs packed with supporters all watching the television and uh, and watching Ireland beat Italy. Uh, so I and uh, myself and my brother uh, had gone to a pub, uh, actually a little cricket ground uh, in East Belfast, which we felt was safe to watch the match. Uh, but just after it was ended, there was a news flash that came onto the TV and uh, the presenter said that there had been an attack during the game at a little pub uh, outside uh, uh, a little village. And it's not really a village, it's just more a crossroads with a church on one side and a pub on the other at a little place called Lockin Island, which is in County Down, about uh, 30 miles south of Belfast. And uh, everyone in the bar that I was in was absolutely stunned stunned by the horrific nature of the reports coming through that six men were dead, several were injured, and that uh, everyone was trying to come to terms. But I think it was a real sense of inevitability. That was the thing about the attack, and that's what stuck with me as a journalist at the time, that it was almost so predictable that an attack would happen on this night. Uh, But what we didn't know was what pub would be chosen. We really thought it would be a pub in inner city Belfast, not a pub 
in the most rural, beautiful part of Ireland that is South Down. And uh, unfortunately, um, that was the chosen target. It was a very soft target, and unfortunately, six men died. And you, you talk about that atmosphere at the time, but in 1994, I remember visiting uh, Northern Ireland in 1997, and there was that sense of, of hope. And at, in 1994, there was a sense of hope, wasn't there, that there was right. a, a ceasefire and that that the troubles might come to an end sometime. So that was that also part of the absolute shock of this, that it was such a soft target, such a quiet community, but also the hope, it killed some hope as well? Right, absolutely. You've just got it headed on the nail in the head there. That really at the time, uh, despite the fact that attacks were continuing, we knew that the British and Irish governments were talking to the uh, representatives of the IRA and that the loyalist paramilitaries were also involved in behind-the-scenes discussions, which everybody knew was leading to a ceasefire. We just didn't know when the ceasefires were going to come. Um, but we had a real sense of hope. You know, Bill Clinton in the White House was very engaged in the peace process. Uh, John Major, the British Prime Minister, and Albert Reynolds, the Irish Prime Minister. In fact, Al- Albert Reynolds, the Irish Prime Minister, was in New York for the game and was uh, involved in discussions in New York about the peace process when he heard the news. So, um, there was this real sense of, a, of of hope in the air, as you say, and uh, I think that's what made the attack even more um, meaningless, if you like. And that why did people have to die when everyone knew we were heading towards a more peaceful era? And in fact, the ceasefires came just within eight weeks after this attack. And I think that also led to the families feeling that um, it was because of the ceasefires that the police didn't go after the killers. And also, I mean, what's really, um, I, I guess, horrifying about this, particularly from watching the film, is is just how soft a target it is. This small pub in, in Lockan Island, which, as you say, is is not even really a town. It's it's kind of a crossroads, and and the pub kind of seems like you know very much kind of the, the core of that particular area. When you started producing this film and, and, and putting it all together. What was the sense from those people you started speaking to from that region who had, had loved ones who'd uh, died in this um, this attack? What, what was their response to you making a film about that and, and documenting it and hopefully bringing kind of someone to justice through this process? Oh, well, I think when we began the process of, of speaking to the families back in 2012, um, what we found was... They were approaching the 20th anniversary of this attack. They had lived with, uh, through the grief and through the devastation of losing their loved ones. These were fathers, sons, grandfathers, uncles, brothers, and uh, very much part of the community. You know, uh, in parts of Belfast in 1994, uh, bars uh, had grills on their doors, had grills to prevent you coming into the bar without going through security check. You know, but this bar called the Heights Bar in Lockan Island, the door was open, open to the road night and day. It was just seen, as you say, uh, Dylan, as a, almost like a, a local community drop-in pub where you met your friends and you met your colleagues and you had a pint after work. Um, so when we began to talk to the families, I think that there was a great sense of frustration. They felt that this area was of Lockan Island was a very integrated area. Catholic and Protestant worked together, Catholic and Protestant drank together in this bar, and they felt that there, there was a real sense of anger that their 
little village had been chosen for this attack and that their men had died and had died for nothing. And they were looking at the authorities and saying, why did you not bring those who are responsible to justice? Why are we not seeing justice for these people? You know, we never took part in the troubles. We had nothing to do with the troubles. And yet here we are. We're suffering uh, uh, horribly uh, as a result of what happened to our loved ones. So while there were anger, anger, there was a great deal of respect and, and integrity. And I must say, these families were some of the most finest people that I met uh, during my whole career, and I have the utmost respect for them. Uh, they are amazing. Uh, they were tenacious. They were determined uh, to to hold somebody to account, and uh, it would really uh, it has been a great privilege working with them since I, I first got to know them now six years ago. And the and the title of the documentary No Stone Unturned is significant because that's what they were told that no stone would be. Uh, left unturned right. in seeking out who the killers were, who those, who the murderers were, but that did not happen. Can you sort of describe how the investigation played out and I suppose why it was just so flawed and why there is now um, so much, I suppose, heartbreak about potential collusion that has interfered with this case? Right. When, when the police officers, the detectives, visited the homes of the dead in the, in the hours and days after the attack, uh, over and over again, the relatives were told by the police that they would leave no stone unturned in their pursuit of the killers. They were determined to bring them to court. They were going to bring them to court and they were going to ensure that they went to jail for this uh, horrific massacre. However, now, 20-odd years afterwards, what the families have realised is that there was no real effective police investigation at all. Um, unlike many other attacks uh, that happened in Northern Ireland, uh, the the killers had left a treasure trove of evidence. Um, they hadn't burnt out the car. They had, the police very quickly found the overalls, the masks, the weapons that were used by the killers. The police knew who they were within 12 hours of the attack. Uh, we know all this as a result of an investigation by what's described as the Ombudsman's Office for Policing in Northern Ireland. And that is an office that is independent of the police that you or I can go to and complain or if you've got a concern about the investigation into anything from a parking fine to a a gross massacre such as this, you can go to the Ombudsman and he will investigate your concern. So the families went to the Ombudsman and over several years and after a, a number of reports and setbacks and all of these things, the Ombudsman in June 2016 came forward with a devastating report, an absolutely devastating report that basically found that the police not only had all this evidence, not only did they know who the killers were, but actually there was collusion between the police and the killers. Now, what do we mean by collusion? Well, in this instance, it simply meant that the police knew who they were, but in fact that a number of the members of the gang that carried out the attack were working for the police, were informers for the police. And that is why, or one of the really good reasons why the police simply failed in their duty to go after the 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 killers. That was because, as the families failed today, they were protecting the killers. They weren't going after them because they knew that if they brought one of the informers into court, that the informer's going to turn around and say, well, actually, I'm working for the police and I've been paid thousands of pounds of money uh, for working for the police. So why am I here? I'm a, I'm a state agent. 
So um, it, there was a cover-up of the informer's role. The families were never told about the informer's role, and they only found that out in June 2016. And as I say, today in Lock and Island, they're still living with that devastation. They're still living with the impact of knowing that the state knew all along who had done that. And not only that, but they had been protecting them. Yeah, it's, it's an incredible story. And I should remind listeners, we're speaking with Trevor Burney, producer of the film No Stone Unturned, which is screening this Friday as part of the Irish Film Festival Australia here in Melbourne. And, I mean, given, I guess, the such sensitive nature of this particular case and, and the Ombudsman's report that, that came out um, under two years ago, what kind of conversations were you, were you having with your fellow filmmakers in terms of how far you were willing to go with, um, I guess, pointing the finger at particular individuals because you definitely do that in the film and in a way go beyond what that, uh, I guess, official report has managed to uncover so far? Right, well, that's a very good question because that, that, is, that, is, um, that is a question that we thought very long and barred very hard over. It was an issue that uh, caused us huge concern um, over the course of the making of the film. So, um, Alex Gibney is the director. I'm in the producer. I'm based in Belfast. Alex is based in, in New York, as you know. And um, we in Northern Ireland are very aware of the phrase trial by media. And we're always concerned that really what happened is that there have been allegations in the past that the media, by naming suspects, um, prevents the opportunity of having a full trial because the suspect will say, well, listen, you know, I, the finger has been pointed at me by the media and I can never get a fair trial. So that was an issue that we had to wrestle with while we came to terms with what we were going to do. Alex was very much determined and we completely supported him in his view that we should name who the chief suspects are for a number of reasons. Uh, as you see from the film and anyone who goes to see it in Melbourne this week, um, one of the, the chief suspects, um, his wife had uh, cooperated with the police and had told the police on a number of occasions that her husband, she felt, was involved in this murder. And uh, despite that fact, the police failed to go after her husband, failed to um, charge her husband despite all the evidence that it had. So we felt that it was important to bring this into the public domain and name not only the suspect, but also name his wife and name the others. Um, and one of the reasons why we did that, there were many reasons why we did it, but one of the reasons that you'll see in the film is that the families of the Lock and Island victims have known for a long time. In fact, they first learnt these names in the weeks and months immediately after the attack. So it was been very well known in Lock and Island that the people who carried out this attack, according to the police, lived only two or three miles down the road. Now, in that 24 year period, there never has been any reprisals, or any, any attempted revenge from any of the families or anyone associated with Lock Island. These men have never been called a bad name in the street, never mind had any attack uh, perpetrated on them, despite the fact that it's been very well known that they were the chief suspects. So we decided really all we were doing was telling the world what the Lock and Island families already knew. So that was one thing. The second one thing was we believed it was absolutely in the public interest that these guys to be named. Uh, and uh, because you couldn't tell the story properly without naming them. You couldn't tell exactly what the police knew, what the families knew without naming them. But I have to say, Dylan, that did cause us real concern. There was uh, a lot of discussion with lawyers and I spent far, much t far too many 
days talking with lawyers uh, for this film um, and uh, but in, 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 uh, eventually we came to the decision that it was the right thing to do uh, but only after serious serious consideration and, and Trevor I mean beyond this case beyond this case and this un- unsolved murder as it still stands even though as you say the suspects have been named publicly there are I, I learned from your film 3,000 unsolved murders as a result of the troubles uh, and are there question marks over these unsolved murders as well with regards to how much the British Army knew, how much the police know? W- what's going to happen? Right, well, um, the unsolved murders and the issues related to the troubles, and particularly to victims of the troubles, are called legacy issues in Northern Ireland. And unfortunately, despite the fact that we're now 20 years, we've just celebrated the 20th anniversary of the Good Friday Agreement. And uh, that has gone in like a blink of an eye. However, um, for these families and for all those families out there, those 3,000 families who still haven't seen any truth or any justice, um, there is a real frustration that despite the success or the apparent success of the the peace process, that um, these legacy issues have not been dealt with. Now, many of the families realize, like the Lock and Island families realize, that the chances of actually getting a conviction and seeing somebody go to jail right now so long after the murders are, 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 are pretty small. But what the families felt, and the film has been given them a real sense of closure, that they have their truth now. They know what happened uh, to their loved ones. They know what the British government knew. They know what the police knew. And that has been um, that has helped give them an, at least an acknowledgement of what happened to them. Now, the Lock and Island families are unfortunately one of the very few that actually have had that. You know, I come from Enniskillen, which is about 100 miles west of Belfast, where 11 people died on Remembrance Sunday morning, 1987, when the bo- an IRA bomb was planted at uh, a service where the people of Enniskillen, including many members of my family, were gathering to remember the fall of the First and Second World War. You know, those families were also promised that there would be no stone unturned. Those families were also promised that there would be IRA members would be brought to court and would serve a life imprisonment for this uh, for this horrific attack. However, 30 years after that attack, they've never seen any justice, and they are just as frustrated as the Lock and Island families. And as you said, there's 3,000 families out there who feel exactly the same. And unfortunately for the peace process and for Northern Ireland, until the British and Irish governments and all the politicians in Northern Ireland come to terms with our past, with these legacy issues, and come to an agreement about how that can be settled, how a line can be drawn onto them, how families can get that truth they seek, I'm concerned that uh, these issues are simply not going, going to go away. And our film, No Stone Unturned, is representative of all the feelings of the vast majority of those 3,000 victims who are deeply, deeply frustrated that um, they don't know why their loving was shot, why their loving was died in a bomb, and why they haven't had justice. And this screened last night in Adelaide. Uh, Trevor, what was the response from the audience there? I mean, people can go and see it this Friday in Melbourne as well, but what, what was this, the screening like there in Adelaide? 
Well, we, we, we premiered in Sydney on Saturday night, and then I came over to Adelaide last night where we had a screening in the Ari Centre in Adelaide. And I have to say, um, I'm really being struck, and I've been telling some friends and colleagues back home in Belfast this morning that um, I've been really struck by the engagement of the audiences here in, in Australia, both in Sydney and in Adelaide last night. You know, an hour after the film was finished, um, they were still sitting, asking questions, talking about the film, talking about... Um, the injustice that had happened, talking about all the issues that had been raised by the film. And I think that it just proves to me about we're always concerned that there's a level of fatigue around whether it's the Northern Ireland conflict or any of the other conflicts. People have to get on with their lives. And, you know, on a Saturday and a Sunday night for, for audiences to come out in such large numbers and to really engage with the film, you know, I think that it's testament to the families who you can only imagine the satisfaction of the families that they know that their audiences here in Australia who are prepared to come out and not only watch the film, but actually engage with it and uh, appreciate just what they have gone through. So it's been fabulous. I've been really, really struck by um, how um, knowledgeable and how engaged and how... Uh, how audiences have reacted and I'm sure it's going to be absolutely the same in Melbourne on Friday. Yeah, the film very much puts a, a human face on, on the troubles in Northern Ireland, which many people would probably be familiar with at the political level, but, um, but not see the enduring effects and, and trauma that it's caused for, for so many people who have been touched by it. Trevor, thanks so much for joining us today on Triple R and um, enjoy the rest of your time in Australia. Thanks, guys. Thanks, thanks very much. Growing Up Aboriginal in Australia is a new book out via Black Ink and edited by Dr Anita Heiss. Uh, Anita is an author, member of the Wiradjuri Nation of Central New South Wales and a lifetime ambassador of the Indigenous Literacy Foundation. We've spoken to her on this program before and it's always great to have you on Triple R. Anita, welcome. Thanks very much um, and thanks for actually wanting to have a yarn about the new anthology. Well, it's really, uh, well, look, it's full of wonderful stories and also surprises and I suppose we should talk a little bit about what the book is. Um, you've got f 50 different people writing in the book but you sort of put out for submissions, did you? How did you actually choose the 50 people who um, write their stories in, in Growing Up Aboriginal in Australia? Oh, that's exactly right. So about in February last year, we did a call out nationally for um, people who wanted to contribute to an anthology about growing up Aboriginal. There were pretty much no boundaries uh, at all, except that it had to be non-fiction. So we, we actually ended up with over 120 submissions, which is just extraordinary. Um, and, and the most difficult job I've ever had to do was to cull that back to 52, because obviously anybody that's taken the time to bear their soul and their family history um, deserves to be heard. So, but we, you know, we could only we could only publish fifty two. We ended up with um, submissions from kids in school. We've got, a, I think, our youngest is a thirteen year old who lives in the inner west of Sydney. We've got someone currently finishing Year Twelve in Port Augusta, and we've got someone in their seventies who was born on Yarrabah Mission. I think half the anthology, um, over half the anthology, uh, contributors who are female. Although I wasn't looking for necessarily any gender. Um, you know, structure around that. That's just how it happened. And we've got um, contributions from, you know, different nations right across the country, from Nukunu in South Australia to Noongar in WA. We've got Wiradjuri, Western Aranda, uh, Kukukalanji up in far northern Queensland. We've actually, I just had a quick look this morning, 
look, I haven't mapped it all out. By chance, I think we've got three that are going to Jamara. So from down, you know, western, uh, sorry, down Victoria way. So uh, there's a spread coastal, remote, uh, rural and so forth. So we wanted to get as many diverse uh, nations and voices and, um, and cross generations in as possible. And and there's people in this book who I'm sure a lot of Triple R listeners would uh, recognise, including Tony Birch, uh, Deborah Cheatham, Adam Goods, and and others as well. But there are a lot of uh, of people that uh, you know many Australians would not have heard of. How important was it to you to kind of showcase those stories of, of those, I guess, who don't already have an existing platform in in the arts or or, or the media or, or that sort of thing? That's a really good question, and I think. Uh for me as a writer and understanding how the previous anthology like this worked, which is Growing Up Asian in Australia, that that anthology became platform and a springboard for brand new voices like Ben Law, who was an advocate when, when we were doing a call out. He was, you know, out, out on Twitter saying to, you know, all my Indigenous mates, if, you know, throw your hat in the ring because it was really important to, yes, we've got established writers like, you know, award-winning Tony Birch and we've got Miranda Capsule and we've got, you know, the big names and, and Celeste Little and Amy Maguire who are known in journalism. But this is this was an opportunity for emerging writers, people who have never published anything before and maybe not want to publishing anything in the future but to give them an opportunity um, to get their story told um, in an anthology that does have uh, gravitas and is being read yeah, I think in Victoria alone it's already on the bestseller list at reading so because people are hungry for authentic stories and authentic voices about who we are from our point of view rather than um, what we've seen over decades which are people writing about us and for us yeah, I was going to say that actually, and that that means that they are incredibly personal. And uh, look, it, it showcases diversity, but I must say that I was really struck by um, the similarity too across the the stories where everybody is challenging stereotypes. Can that be a similarity? But that feeling of reading and going, oh, hang on, you've just surprised me, or wow, I didn't know that still happened in Australia, yeah. that sort of thing. And uh, that again, you couldn't have asked for that, but that has that does come out as, as a theme in this uh, anthology? That's a really good question. And for me, I mean, I even I've, I'm probably one of the well, the, the most well-read uh, read of, of Aboriginal literature in the country. And even I was surprised by the stories that came in in terms of the similarities, unfortunately, are quite often all those negative experiences. So many experiences in the education system related to uh, racism and stereotypes so many instances that are in these stories from people from different corners of this country, different ages, um, talking about the obsession that non-Indigenous people have with Aboriginal identity and, and having to explain you know, the colour of their skin and what percentage Aboriginal they are and so forth. So that there is a, there are many common themes and that is, uh, you know, identity, um, the, the obsession with Aboriginal identity um there's also lots lots of um, stories of removal stolen generations and the impact that that has had on individuals today there's also i think there's a strong element which is a positive of uh family and and family values throughout throughout the anthology and also of course it's a sprinkling of sport um because it's very uh it's a tool that used is used to connect us at a community level as well so there are the you know family and kinship um the place 
connection to place and country. So even the people that appear in the anthology who currently reside in Melbourne, um, who are from somewhere else, they, they still have they have a, a connection to the city of Melbourne or, or Victoria, but all play, place themselves in the country they are from. And all, all those themes um, you mentioned, Anita, and, and the negative stereotypes that I guess have persi- persisted throughout Australia's history mm. in relation to, to being mm. Aboriginal are present in, in a lot of the contributions to this anthology, but it also um, is very much a, a kind of an affirmation of, of all these individuals' identity. And um, Shannon Foster, a, a Durable educator, artist and PhD candidate, someone I wasn't aware of and, and learnt more about from this particular book, she speaks about the very positive influence of her father as a storyteller, someone knew how to, th- how to fix things and how things worked. And she said that to, to her being Aboriginal meant that you were smart, intelligent, inventive and resilient. So it's kind of a very much a, a celebration of all those things as much as you pick up these themes of, of how difficult the, the experience is for these people in Australia. Oh. Absolutely, and I, and I grew up on the fringes of La Perouse um, out at Matraville, and so I even, you know, and I, I know of the Fosters, I, I didn't know Shannon personally, but so it was great for me to see, with you know, woven through the, through the anthology, we do have motivational pieces uh, by Shannon, but also by um, people like Patrick Johnson, who's, who I think he's, he's obviously a former Olympian and so forth, and a role model and ambassador, and it's... it's and I think if you look at the bios, if you start, I mean, I often start at the bios of a book, at the back of the book, and you look at where people are today and you see a diversity of what we are doing in society and contributing to uh, everyday educators, artists, sports people, mothers, community workers and so forth. And when you marry what we're doing today and what the, and what the stories actually represent over time, for me, what I see is resilience. And that's what I think this anthology does. It says we have been, we are forced as young people, as children quite often, to become resilient very early in our lives. And yet we thrive and we grow. And even in the stories that talk about um, over time people being ashamed of their identity or being made to feel embarrassed about their identity, um, a moment where that growth happens and that it's embraced. And that when, and I think anthologies like this, while they are obviously published for a large non-Indigenous audience in a school market generally, I do believe, or I hope, that it actually empowers um, people who are still growing up, as it were. And, and Deborah Cheatham talks about how you know she's still growing up in terms of becoming being an Aboriginal person. We're speaking with Dr Anita Heiss. Uh, a book she's edited, Growing Up Aboriginal in Australia, is out. Uh, and uh, 50 uh, contributions are published in the book. And I, I think she could do a whole other volume, actually. But I, I wanted to ask about... I must say, I was drawn to the, the writers that are in their 20s. And I think because they're just... You know, we associate growing up with the teen years, don't we? Even though I think all of us feel like we're still growing up, but um, yeah. they've just come out of that those sort of teen years. And Evelyn Araluen um, was one of the contributions I read, and she speaks about her experience of her of two worlds pressing in on each other. And this is something uh, that there's some poetry in the book again um, from from Alice Eater, uh, who uh, is another contributor to this book about this sort of split world that people are living in. Can you talk to that a bit, uh, Anita? Yes, I can. And I really, when I, um, I, I really need to, when I, read Eve, when I read Evelyn's piece first up, I, I just, 
I just thought this is a brilliant piece that will be very useful in the classroom to be talking about, you know, that two world. Um, but I, I do need to let your listeners know that it was during the process of pulling this anthology together that um, Alice actually took her own life. And she does write about um, keeping the fires burning in those two worlds. And her family's desire is that her story within this anthology will go on to help other people as well because there are many of us including myself like i you know my father was austrian my mother aboriginal born on around mission in cowra and all her siblings born in brungle um but also celeste little writes about you know the, when she was called black bum as a five-year-old and it was the first time she realized she was different she had a black father and a white mother and just assumed everybody had the same thing so there that's another common thread going through this anthology that um you know we are told often that we are straddling two worlds and, and then it becomes an issue for us and for others who are bilingual, like Alice is bilingual, she was an educator and, and her way of managing that was also teaching young people in the classroom about identity and keeping those two, the fires of those two worlds burning. And, and in the process of, of putting this all together, Anita, what, what's been the response from, from those who have been included in this anthology? I guess those who um, haven't been published much before or, or perhaps this is their first time they've been published. What's been their response to, to seeing the book in its kind of final version and on the, on the bookshelves in books, bookstores? Yeah, another good question. Look, look, it's interesting. I the, the response from everybody, from people who have contributed for the first time, and to readers, random readers, just getting the book and tweeting, yeah, is overwhelming. And I think, I mean, I remember what it was like twenty years ago when I was first published in an anthology or you know literary journal, and it was you know nothing like we're doing today, obviously. And um, I think people are people are grateful for the opportunity to be heard because our voices have been silenced for so long and we haven't had platforms or mechanisms. So it's like major kudos to Black Ink for doing this anthology and they approached me about about doing it and I just, and I had already said, you know, I can't take on any more projects because I'm so busy, but I saw this and I, and I, I work in schools a lot doing work, writing workshops with students around the country and I knew straight away the value of this work in the classroom in terms of starting a new dialogue, in terms of embedding Indigenous perspectives in the classroom under the national curriculum. And I know that but for those authors, particularly the older ones uh, who have carried their stories all their lives, finally people are hearing um, what their life has been like. And I think we should all be grateful that this is, this is actually... I'm grateful and I feel privileged to have been able to pull this together. Um, and I wouldn't be surprised if there was another volume that came out in years to come. And you, you talk about the school curriculum. Will this land straight onto it? Or what's that process for, for uh, having a book such as this end up on a reading list? Or I don't know if it's English or history class. What, what, or it can't be history, can it? Like, what, where does it, where does well, it fit? I think, <laughs> I think it fits across because there is a lot of history in there. I think, it, you know, Australian studies, history, um, society and culture. Obviously, there'll be people at the publishing house working uh, with boards of studies nationally to um, get that onto curriculum. There are teachers notes online that teachers can download now i have been tweeted by numerous teachers around the country saying that it's part of their professional development as well and so the idea uh, is that we're not it's about making the job easier for the teacher in the classroom so they can read this they get a greater understanding of how to deal with particular um questions by students in the classroom I, I think a lot of people will see themselves um, for good and bad 
in this anthology. There was a review on the weekend um, by a gentleman by the name of David Stevens in Honest History, and he was saying that it's books like this will this book will ring bells for a lot of middle-aged to elderly white fellows because they will see themselves in terms of some of the things and the way they speak and and some of the stereotypes they may have. So I think this will make teaching teachers a lot stronger and more capable in the classroom. Yeah, it actually reminds me when you mentioned Celeste a little earlier that of of um, Celeste's contribution to this anthology and I guess the the broader effect that can can have um, you know on on white Australians and non-Aboriginal Australians as well and Celeste's take on growing up Aboriginal in Australia um, she writes until this country finally grows up Aboriginal itself and starts not Mm. only being honest about its history and the ongoing impacts of colonisation but also making amends I don't feel like I'll be able to completely grow up Aboriginal myself so it it feels like this book has has very much um, you know can, can play a role particularly in the school system in 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 helping us um, better understand that history for those who um, haven't been confronted with it before? Uh, Absolutely. And I think that, um, you know, a nation growing up is really just a nation of individuals growing up. And we've all, we're all on a journey, black, white, brindle. Uh, we've all, we're all, we've all grown up a certain way. And I think when non-Indigenous Australia comes to understand what the growing up process is for us, what the socialisation process is for us, and I don't mean in our own communities, I mean we are being socialised today very similarly to the way in which people were socialised decades ago in the classroom and on the playground um, in negative ways. Um, And Celeste talks about, um, you know, when she was five years old and being called black bum and the first time that she realised that she was different. And so, and as you say, towards the end, she talks about, you know, not being able to grow up. And I think for many of us, we are, I mean, we're all learning every day, but I believe that this nation will grow up, as Celeste says, when they've grown up Aboriginal. And we can only all do our little bit. You guys do radio and, and inform your listeners in different ways on different issues. And this is one small but important contribution to the to the dialogue and and for non-indigenous Australians to have an opportunity in the privacy of their own home or in their book clubs to sit down and read and actually engage with our stories in our voices um, and in, in on things that are important to us well, thanks so much for talking with us, uh, Anita, and uh, all the best with the book. And it sounds like it's got a uh, a big future, particularly in the, in the school school classrooms as well. Um, thanks for being on Triple R. Thanks for having me. And you might not realise it, but the Australian government has a community support program that allows communities to privately sponsor refugees to live here in Australia. The program's not perfect and it's expensive. However, many refugee advocates and human rights organisations can see ways it can be improved and have kicked off a campaign to explain how the program works and why it can help break the deadlock in refugee policy. Tim Norton is head of campaigns at Save the Children and savvy listeners will remember he was in recently wearing another hat talking about digital rights and it's good to see you Tim. Thank you. And um, maybe just tell us about the community support program, um, you know, how it currently works, when it was introduced, that sort of thing. Yep, so um, it's uh, had a different name for a couple of years. Um, it's just been recently revamped by the government and essentially it, as you said in your intro, it allows members of the community to actually sponsor a refugee to come into Australia. Um, it's a good step. It's a good way for us to diversify the income or the intake of uh, different refugees. Um, But it's got a lot of flaws around how it actually works. Um, At the moment, uh, there's a huge cost barrier because the government essentially wants people to foot the bill. 
of all of the risks associated with bringing someone into the country. Um, it's also targeted more towards skilled migration. Um, and to be honest, most of what it's been used for in the past has been family reunification, which makes sense. If you're actually going to stump up a huge amount of cash and try and get people into the country, you're going to want yeah, it to you, be your heart's your people. Be, yeah, and I, I, it sort of, that sort of answers a question I had is, how would I, if I wanted to support someone, how would I identify who to support? But if I already had connections, that's how I've... How, that's how it's done. Exactly. So the program as it stands, I mean, the government uh, assigns what are called APOs, which are supporting organisations, um, refugee resettlement organisations. So you would go to an organisation such as AIMS and you would say, I would like to support a refugee. Here they are. You know, they happen to be my uncle or my cousin or my father or whatever it is. Um, you would put a huge amount of money into a holding account. Uh, and that's, you know, upwards of $100,000 we're talking here. And you would say, I will take all of the burden of actually getting that person here. Now, that organisation will then help you with all of the paperwork, with all of the immigration policies, and they would get that person here. Um, but then there's this big assumption that that person needs to immediately give back to the community. They need to get a job. You know, they don't have access to any of the support neck mechanisms that we do. And it puts this huge strain on, on the organisation and on the family. And it's not actually helping people to resettle here. You know, one of the best ways that we can actually help people resettle is to have a welcoming community that actually identifies the opportunities available for them and acknowledges the hardships of where they've come from. And there's a huge amount of wealth of, of generosity that actually exists within our country. Um, I should say that, you know, supporting refugees is not a new concept. It's been happening for decades. It just hasn't been happening with a very lined up link to the government programs. You know, you've got amazing initiatives like uh, Welcome to Australia, uh, the Welcome Wagon, even the recent news of um, little town in Victoria of Eltham who um, the government identified an aged care facility that could be used for housing some of the Syrian refugees that came in from the intake about two years ago. So they went about setting that up and the community got wind this was happening and so they started saying, well, this is great. You know, we want people to come here and be welcomed in our town. And there was the usual sort of backlash of the alt-right and there were people being flown in to have these rallies, you know, against refugees. And what was really welcoming was the town rallied against it and it actually solidified their their resolve to support and welcome people so now um my parents-in-law actually live in eltham so i get to sort of see it every week and there's this huge welcoming attitude where people are actually going out of their way to go down hang out with refugees you know show them where the shops are uh, make them understand how the australian economy works help their kids enroll in school all the little things that happen when you land in a foreign town it's not actually so much about someone needs to pay your wage it's actually someone needs to be your friend and that's happening everywhere and so say the children in, in conjunction with a range of other NGOs are calling for, um, I guess, a, a refigured kind of community sponsorship program to allow refugees to come to Australia and be supported by the community. How kind of would this work in conjunction with the existing humanitarian program um, facilitated by the government? Yeah, so at the moment, the, um, the community support program is actually part of our intake. And that is a problem in our view. Um, we're talking humanitarian intake and then you're talking community sponsorship. They are different things. And we need to make sure that we're not um, bastardising one just to get, say that we're actually reaching those, those quotas. So number one, it has to be separate from the humanitarian intake. Um, the cost barrier needs to come down is a big thing there. Um, and we've done a lot of modelling on um, other programs around the world and how they work. And the prime example is Canada. 
which has been running a community refugee sponsorship program for more than 40 years. It's become part of the DNA of how Canada's immigration policies work and surprisingly survived even through right-wing governments like Stephen Harper. Um, it's, it's part of how they approach um, their responsibility. And so in that model... Um, it's very similar to what we're advocating here. You would put your hand up as a group and you don't have to be a formal group in any kind of form. In Canada, you see book clubs and scout groups and um, all these people sort of coming together, even the bowling club. They would go to a supporting organisation, an APO, and they would say, we're up for it. You know, let's help a refugee. Um, they have to put together a small amount of money. So the, you know, versus the $100,000 we're talking here, we're maybe talking 25000 And they take on the responsibility of being that friend, essentially. Now, the systems are so well set up in Canada that the organisation, the supporting organisation and the Canadian Immigration Department work in tandem to actually support those individuals. You know, if you've never done it before, you obviously get a lot more support. But then we're talking, there's also generational groups that have supported multiple waves of mm. refugees, so they're pretty good at it. You know, they're just like, okay, we're ready for our next batch, you know, let's go, we know what's happening here, we'll find you a rental accommodation, we'll help you, you know, go shopping the first time, you know, we'll come down every week and teach your kids English, all those sort of things that happen. Um, and what you do see is that the faster that someone can actually integrate into a society, in actual fact, the, the quicker they will get a job and they will start to give back to that community. So that's what we need to do is actually have that sort of welcoming community to give them that step. And so in the Canadian example that you're using, uh, the, the people that are sponsored via the community in this way don't come out of the commitments made by the Canadian government to resettle. It's, it's actually a separate program because in Australia, the community support program, if I support somebody, that actually comes out of our overall refugee intake. Okay, yeah. I get it. So how, with regards to the, the kind of visa, I think we understand that business does this already for skilled migration and, and we have spouse visas and these sorts of family re reunification visas. So this uh, community support program visa, is it a refugee visa or is it somehow different? No, it's a refugee visa. And um, again, one of the things that we're trying to tweak in the program is to make sure that it's actually taking those people that need the most help, the most vulnerable, those that have been identified by UNHCR as needing that support and unable to return to their home. I think that's an important distinction to make is that when you're talking about supporting a refugee or an asylum seeker, at the moment the government's line is, sure, we want to support those people, but only if they can give back, which automatically cuts out a huge range of people who have seen huge torture and hardships and don't have the skills that we supposedly need in our economy. Um, but they still have something to give back and they, they can be very productive members of society. And, and at the same time, at the way it's working at the moment, it's unlikely that those people would have a family member necessarily in Australia ready to sponsor. Yep. So you're trying to kind of see the program change in a way that there is an ability for communities here to maybe work with the government to identify who can be sponsored to come rather than already having to know who those people might be because how exactly. can how can a scout group know who the most needy person might be to bring here so you're you're kind of saying that there should be a cooperation there with the department yeah and one of our aims here is actually to show the the generosity and the goodwill that exists we know it's there and one of the things that is often pushed back um, from the government end is well show us where this massive need is, um, or sorry, where this massive, you know, desire to house refugees is. So if we can actually go back to them and say, well, we have 100,000 people who are standing by ready to do this and they're willing to put their money where their mouth is, as long as you 
lower that money barrier to make it more credible, then we've, we've got more of a bargaining chip to go back to the government and say, you know, you need to change this to actually reflect what your own citizens are wanting. Yeah, it, it all makes a lot of sense. And, and even um, in, in that way of, you know, potentially reducing the burden on the government to wholly look after um, that program and, and administer it. So it seems to make sense from that level as well. This campaign's been launched recently. Have you had much of a sense or a response yet from government about how seriously they might, might take this? Yeah, I mean, it's been quite welcoming, actually. Um, we're not, um, for starters, it's um, not our usual MO. We're not just uh, screaming and shouting about what they're doing wrong. We're giving them props for actually moving in the right direction. And they are quite reasonably going back to us saying, we're not going to go this extra step unless we know it's wanted. And so we're starting that dialogue. Um, both, both sides of government actually have been quite uh, open to this. And I think when you look at the current policy settings, we have a bipartisan kind of um, locked-in approach to offshore processing, to immigration policy. So there's not much to move there at the moment. But what there is room to move in is how we can actually diversify that intake of how we actually welcome people. And as I said, both Labor and Liberal are actually quite open to this and they're looking at ways and we're kind of doing a little bit of their job for them to kind of push them in the right direction. Mm. Well, we're speaking with Tim Norton. He's head of campaigns at Save the Children and uh, speaking about a government program that exists called Community Support program and allows communities to privately sponsor refugees to live in Australia and I suppose tweaks to that program that can actually make it much more workable. Who's involved with this campaign? I suppose what, you know, what's the time scale? What, how long are you going to be trying to get people on board to, to take part in, uh, well, I suppose tell government that we want to take part in this kind of program? Yeah. Um, uh, I can answer the second question. We'll keep going <laughs> until we get what we want. So you um, think that this is the right approach? So you're quite convinced... Definitely. I think it's it's definitely one thing that if we can fix this one element of our immigration policies, then we can move on to others. So like I said, we, we, we know we can't move much on, on border protection. Um, both sides of government, of, of politics have definitely shown us that there's just this unwillingness to shift at the moment. And so our approach has been, well, what can we make better? Um, and you would have seen like a couple of years ago, there was that one-off increase where Tony Abbott actually announced 12,000 Syrian and Northern Iraqis coming in. Now that was great. And that was a good response to seeing what was a massive need. The problem there is that if you have a one-off intake to a certain cohort of people, that ignores the principle of how we should be allowing refugees to come in. It should be based on UNHCR recommendations, on humanitarian principles, and it should be a steady increase of people over time. We don't want a government that just says, all right, we're going to let in 5,000 of them and 2,000 of them, and oh no, the bomb's gone off, let's bring another 1,000 in. That's not a sustainable program. So what this does is actually say to, as you said, you know, Dylan, to, to governments, all right, well, we know the community will support those. So that's done and we know we can, we can trust that citizens will take care of that one. And now as a government, we can move on to making our humanitarian intake bigger and better. Mm. Um, in terms of who's involved, there's a range of refugee and humanitarian organisations. Um, and I think particularly, you know, at the, at the larger end of the scale, you've got Save the Children and, and Amnesty um, and the Refugee Council. But a lot of the work that's been happening in the last couple of years has actually been done at the grassroots level. And that's where groups like Rural Australians for Refugees um, and Welcome to Australia um, and the Australian Church's Refugee Task Force that's really where the bulk of the goodwill is. And when we launched this last week and we put the call out and said, well, we need to show people what the examples are here, by and large, it actually came from the faith community. There are countless, I literally cannot count the number of churches who stood up and said, oh, yeah, we've been supporting refugees for about 10, 15 years. Now, they've been doing it on their own back. 
The difference is they've been doing it on people who have made it here. Now they get here, they realise that they don't know the language, they don't know the community, the culture, and they don't have the support of government, and they turn to the local congregation, who of course turn around and say, yeah, we'll help you. So they've been helping them, getting them groceries, you know, supporting them to sort of integrate into society. So I guess that's already happening. What we're actually asking for is for it to be acknowledged and then to be supported by a government program that actually makes it bigger and, and allow stronger. people to have working visas and study visas and things like that that many are denied at the moment yeah exactly and as you alluded to earlier tim australia's humanitarian intake has fluctuated over the years depending on which political party is in power and also depending on on outside events um such as around that that announcement around the syria refugees um coming to australia the idea of or, or issue of, of migration and, and population growth is one that's often politicised and has been recently in the wake of the Grattan Institute report around the potential impact that's having on housing affordability in major cities and so on. Is there kind of a, a number that, that you think should be, um, I don't know, I guess I guess a limit or a goal for, for how many people we could take in as part of this program running alongside our humanitarian intake? Yeah, I mean, we want it increased um, at, in the immediacy to 5,000 per year and then going up to 10,000 per year and, as I said, separate to the humanitarian intake. But even when you sort of throw around those numbers, I think it's useful to put it in, in context of the scale of the global need that you're talking here. It's 65 million people worldwide are displaced, so that counts into internal displaced as well and not, not formal refugees. But even if you were to look at formal refugees, it's 22 million. Now, globally, there are 93,000 places for those people. That's a huge disparity. I think the numbers are around about you know 0.4% of need is actually allocated. So even if you wanted to look at the idea of well what, you know what impact does it have in our country when you look at a global scale we have to do something. Mm -hmm. um, even if it's actually not out of the goodness of our own heart, out of a reality of what's going to happen. It's a powder keg waiting to actually explode. And if you if you take a protectionist border policy and you say we need to make sure that these people don't swamp us the longer you hold the dike back, the more it will swamp eventually. And so even from a protectionist point of view, it makes more sense to be more welcoming and to allow people in. And I think the Canadians, um, the Brits and New Zealanders are all looking at that, and that's just the Commonwealth countries, of how they can actually be more realistic about what can actually be achieved. And I suppose, you know, it's even in those countries, things aren't perfect. And we know in the UK, there has been concerned around, uh, concern around immigration for a long time in certain sectors. So is this kind of program likely to improve that as well and, and create more, sort of, I suppose, harmony in communities that if there are people there that put their hand up and saying, well, we're taking responsibility so that there's maybe some more support? Is that is that potential? Yeah, I think so. I mean, we'll always see that backlash. We'll always see that xenophobia. But you're right, the more that we can actually show integration. And part of that is the story that the refugee sector has been telling for a number of years. It's not that there are people who are other to you that want to come here and they don't want to take your jobs and they don't want to, you know, um, you know, institute Sharia law. That's a falsehood. But what you actually end up doing is saying, well, that person who lives next door to you may have been born in Iran, but they're just like you. You know, they just want a family. They just want a safe home. They just want to have a job. They want to pay their taxes. They want to do exactly what you want to do. And when, as the more that we tell this story, um, you know, it's that, that great story about the town of Nil um, out in rural area where the lover duck um, uh, factory, who basically, as far as I understand it, plucked chickens for a living, um, had a huge influx of Cambodian refugees that were skilled uh, and they were put to work 
sponsored by the Lover Duck uh, Corporation. And there was a big push back in the community where people said, well, who are these people? Where are they coming from? They're not like us. Um, and, you know, give it three or four months and now there is a massive welcoming element to the community there. And you're with Save the Children, Tim. So what about children in this context? Um, can communities sponsor minors to come through this program at the moment and how does that work? Well, they definitely should be able to and that's one of the things that we're asking for is that there has to be that idea of you need to identify people who have great need. If that includes unaccompanied minors, then we definitely need to prioritise that. If it includes family groups with small children, we need to prioritise that. Um, and I think that's where there's this link between individuals in the community, sponsoring organisations and the government. With all three levels there, we can definitely make sure that it's that all of those are actually ticked off and we have the right support. And I suppose it sounds like the, the government's not dismissing this out of hand, so um, this campaign might have a little way to run, but at the moment, signs are good. Yeah, it? I think so. I think we'll see some traction on this, and I think, if anything, it'll show that there is this um, ability for government to actually listen to its citizens and say, OK, well, if that's what you want, then we'll, we'll enable that. Well, good information on the Save the Children website, but also on the Amnesty website if you want to chase up a little bit more about the campaign. Um, what they're trying to do is uh, identify, well, highlight to the community that there is this visa entry program, community support program available. They're trying to improve it and extend it and uh, make sure there's a, the community will tell MPs that they're interested in it. So uh, you can find out more information on their websites. Thanks for coming in, Tim. Thank you. And Tim uh, Norton's with uh, Save the Children. This has been a podcast from 3RRR. 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.